The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, page 978, if you're using the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, I think the sound is working better now, yes? So, Apologies for that. I was thinking I was going to have to really project, and we thank the Lord for a sound system that's working. So let's worship the Lord by listening carefully to this, the public reading of his word. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Loving Father, we're so thankful to be counted among your children, and we ask, O Lord, that you would, yes, as the psalmist prayed, come and bless our souls, bless your children. Will you come to us and feed us with the true bread of your word again this evening? May it be for us a light unto our feet and a a, a, a lamp unto our feet, a light into our path. We pray that you would come by the power of your spirit and use it to guide us and, and to preserve us on that path indeed unto everlasting life to which you have called us in Jesus Christ. Hear us and bless us, for we ask for this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. We'll look at the latter part of the text as well uh, a bit, certainly by way of application. We're focusing on the, the, uh, the first part of the text. The subject is, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. As I was thinking about this, this uh, text and that subject before us, this evening, I remember the old saying which says that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's an expression which was popularized in the late 19th century by the Irish poet and playwright Oscar Wilde. He actually expanded it to say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. We, we typically hear just the first part of that saying. I used to think of it as an expression used by celebrities, actors and comedians to justify their doing impersonations of other famous people. I think that was, must have been the context in which I first heard that when I was young. So the idea is, you know, it might seem like I'm making fun of you, right? Mimicking you in order to get a laugh at your expense, but really I'm paying you a compliment. Okay, I'm not sure that's really what the expression was intended to mean. Flattery, by definition, is excessive and insincere praise given especially for the purpose of furthering one's own interests. So if you flatter someone in that sense, you 
compliment them, hoping that to, to persuade them to do something for you, right? Hence the expression, don't try to flatter me, right? That's the person who sees through to your true motive and smells a rat, as it were. Well, you show someone that you truly value him or her, not by impersonating that person for some selfish goal, some selfish motive. No, it shows that you truly think highly of a person if you actually truly desire and seek to become like that person. And I suppose that's true even with our relationship with God. We can, we can worship our God with our lips, giving excessive praise, but it really is shown to be quite hollow and insincere if it's not joined together with imitation, imitation of God, seeking to be like God. That is sincere praise indeed, and so it is with true godliness. So Thomas Watson writes that a godly man is like God. He has the same judgment as God. He thinks of things as God does. He has a godlike disposition. It might seem like an, an obvious point to be making this evening. Godliness is, by definition, being like God. And in that sense, that's what this entire sermon series has been about. This has been a sermon series on godliness for those who are visiting us this evening. But, th- but this is worth giving special attention to. Godliness is being like God. Godliness is not aspiring to uh, unto impersonal qualities, right? The way even an atheist might aspire to become a better person, be a good person. No, for the Christian, godliness is becoming like someone, like it's becoming like our God. And it's that to which Paul was calling the Christians in Ephesus. That's, uh, it is that which he commanded the believers when he wrote these words, be imitators of God, and notice that he does so while reminding them what God is like. Be imitators of God, who is so gracious and loving to you. That's our message this evening, that as Christians, we are called to be imitators of our gracious and loving God. This evening, I want us to note note three things about that call, and the first is that it is a call to do so as he has revealed his grace and his love in Christ's sacrifice for us. So our text begins, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This, this text, this message follows nicely after what we heard last week. Pastor Host showed us... Uh, preached about how the godly one is, a, is one who is loving, and he reminded us how that begins with understanding how God loves us. The godly person is loved by God, and certainly we see that here as well. Indeed, I think it's so important for us to remember that, to come back to that again and again and again. We see, we see the centrality of the cross of Christ, the centrality of the grace and love of God revealed at the cross. Do you see your your need to hear that again this evening, dear Christian? Do you need to be reminded of God's grace to you? Do you need to be reminded of how much God loves for you and has shown that love to you, his grace and his love to you in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you? How important is it for us to hear that in a sermon series on godliness? Without that as our foundation, 
Christ, Christ the center, Christ and his cross, the foundation. Without that, without him, all of our aspirations unto godliness, what will will they amount to? They'll be worthless, won't they? Nothing but the worst kind of insincere flattery indeed. Without Christ, any striving unto godliness really will be hopeless legalism like we heard about this morning. Indeed, the command to imitate God will be for us a message of nothing but condemnation because we are sinners who are nothing like God. We are sinners. Remember our sin in Adam, this call to be like God. It reminds us of the imago Dei, that, that, that we were created in the image of God. As those created in God's image, we were called by virtue of creation to be those who imitate God. That's a truth which I think is very much in the context of our text this evening. If you look across the page in your Bible to chapter 4 and verse 24, you see that command to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's one of the proof texts for our shorter catechism question and answer number 10. It asks the question, how did God create man? And the answer is, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. God created us, created such that by the way in which we would behave and conduct ourselves in this world, we would show forth what our God is like. By walking in righteousness and in holiness, we were to to show the character of our God as a righteous and holy God. Of course, we know the sad story. In Adam's sin, we trampled all over God's holiness. And that sin spoiled the image of God. Yes, even fallen sinners are still image bearers of God, but it's significantly marred in fallen man. As fallen sinners, we are wholly defiled. We are totally depraved. In thought and word and deed, by nature, we are completely contrary to God. By nature, we are those who make a mockery of the command to be imitators of God. Do you see then, dear, dear Christian, how much you need your Savior, how much you need Christ this evening? Do you think that you can ever even begin to be like God without the Lord Jesus? Imitate God, really? The thrice holy Lord God Almighty of ourselves? Are we really to begin to, to try to imitate him? As as, uh, Matthew mentioned earlier, I chose that particular uh, uh, affirmation of faith from the confession just because of the way it speaks to how God is so wholly unlike us, exalted in his holiness and righteousness. And and so as we confess that, one message we, we remember is that we are just nothing like him at all. Isn't that what Isaiah learned? Think about that that vision which he received in Isaiah chapter 6. Can you can imagine if Isaiah, upon seeing the Lord in his holy temple and all of his thrice, uh, his, his holiness, uh, can you imagine if he'd been told, okay, you've seen him, now go, be like him, right? How would he have responded to that? Yeah, good luck with that, right? I'm thinking Isaiah would have dropped dead. Isaiah was undone with a sense of his own uncleanness his wickedness. He saw his great need of the grace of God and how wonderfully that grace was revealed to him. And beloved, just note 
how that grace is so wonderfully revealed to us here, even in the command to be imitators of God. Just, just think, look at the command and think about this again. You know, we can imagine Paul giving that command, be like God. And the Christians in Ephesus saying, okay, well, what is he like? Show us what he's like. And if we think about all the places Paul could have gone to give a description of what God is like, he could have gone to passages like that Isaiah 6 passage, passages revealing God's unapproachable holiness, his righteousness, even his terrible judgments against sin. It makes me wonder how the Apostle Paul would have answered that question. What is God like if he'd been asked that question prior to his conversion? How would Saul have Tarsus answered that question. He knew the scriptures. He could have come up with a profoundly biblical description of what God is like, at least according to his understanding, before he came to Christ. But I'm thinking that that Paul the Apostle would have said that Saul of Tarsus never truly knew what God was like, not until he met Christ. Do you want to see what God is like? Paul is saying, consider Jesus. Look at him. Loving giving himself, giving himself up, a, a, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think one of the reasons for that beautiful description is because it's the sacrifice of Christ that gives such a, a beautiful, pleasing description of what exactly God is like. It shows his very heart. This is what God is like. Just think about that. It's true that, that all of God's word reveals what God is like, but all of his word uh, points to that centerpiece, that central part, component of his self-revelation, that great act of sacrificial love, the cross. The cross stands at the center of God's revelation because, among other reasons, the cross so wonderfully and supremely reveals what God is like. And brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's good news of grace this evening. Here in in this text, in the very command to be an imitator of God, we find not a command which condemns us. We find a command which reminds us of how much God loves us. He loves you. All of your ongoing failures to be like him, notwithstanding. Here he reminds you of his grace and his love shown forth through his shed blood, which washes away all of your sins. We'll say more about this as we move to our second point about the call to be imitators of God. We see, secondly, that it is a call then to walk in the love of Christ. There again, to, to be living a life of being immersed in the love of Christ, walk in the love of Christ. Here again, the very command, imitate God by walking in love is such a testimony of the grace of Christ, even the sanctifying grace of Christ. When we remember that by nature we are enemies, haters of God, we are children of wrath, that's what we were. But here we're reminded that that there's been a great change. Now we are in Christ Where Adam failed to imitate God, Jesus came. He came as the second Adam. He came as the God-man Messiah. Jesus came as true God, and he came as the true imitator of God. Even as man, he came, and he, he, in the way in which he acted, he, he, he he showed forth perfectly what God is like. God's 
great creational design, the Imago Dei, his purpose that mankind should show what he is like, it was so wonderfully fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus imitated God in all of his wonderful obedience, and and again, particularly at that greatest point of his obedience, his laying down his life, his dying on the cross, and brothers and sisters, that one loving act of righteousness was an an act wherein Jesus was acting perfectly godlike, and by that, you and I are now accepted as God's dear, beloved children. I hope that's true for everyone who would be here listening to this message this evening. If there are any who have never truly come to Christ, you've never embraced him in true saving faith, here in these words, not only a warning this evening, but such a kind invitation. Here God invites you, come. Without Christ, you are, you are not in the grace and the love of God. You have no ability, no possibility of walking in true love. The call to imitate God this evening is only a message of condemnation for you if you are not in Christ. It's nothing but a reminder of of all that you have failed to be. You've failed to be what God has created you to be, and you are bound for an eternity where you will know nothing of the love of Christ, but only God's wrath. But here, God is revealing to you what he is like, how he revealed his love and his grace in, in giving his own son, Jesus, that one who came and walked in perfect love, and he did so for sinners just like you. And he invites you, come to him in faith. Come to him in faith. And the Bible teaches that as many as, rece- as, many as receive him, those who believe on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Come and become a beloved child of God in Christ Jesus, and you will know the grace then to walk in his love. Yes, sin spoiled the image of God in us, but again, as we're taught in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 24 of Ephesians, in Christ we are, we are created, that is, we are recreated after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or Colossians 3.10, where Paul writes about how Christians have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Ephesians 2.10, Paul wrote that we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that life of walking in those good works. It's a life of, of imitating Christ and his good work. It's a life of, of, of learning of Christ, studying, seeing what he is like, walking with him, learning to be like him. When I was growing up, I somewhat lived in the shadow of my older brother. He was a fabulous athlete, and so he was the most popular kid in the school. All of the kids wanted to be just like him. And I remember the time that our family went to a professional soccer game. We went with another family, and that family had a a young boy. And I remember how obvious it was that that little boy was just thrilled to even be in the presence of my brother. And he even sat next to him in the very next seat, and he was watching him. He was studying his every move. There was even a cool way we would hold our soda can back then. We were really cool if you knew how to hold your Coke can, and he made sure he was holding it just like my brother, 
Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery indeed. Well, brothers and sisters, if, if, if little kids can be that way in the way that they relate to bigger kids, ought it not to be so with us and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you so look to him, your Lord and your Savior? Does it, does it delight your little childlike heart to think that you get to be in his presence, that he welcomes you to be with him, to know him, to learn of him, to become like him? Last week uh, in the, the evening sermon, Pastor Hulswell exhorted us to, with regards to the spiritual discipline, that, that blessed discipline, that, that privilege of living in communion with God. That's something we do, do well to think about, remind ourselves of every day, but certainly as we're thinking about this, this call to be imitators of God. Dear Christian, do you wake up each morning eager to be in the presence of your God, eager to commune with him, to hear him speaking to you through his word, to be praying to him, to meditate upon his great works, his glorious person, all of his, his attributes, to delight at the thought that he calls you to be immersed in his love and his grace each day. A day will come when, when we will see Christ We will see him in all of his glory and wonder of wonders. We will instantly be made perfectly just like him as we see him as he truly is. That's what the Bible promises. But I think that the Bible also promises that even now with respect to our present sanctification, we become like him as we see him, as we are living in his presence, as we are with him. Do you purpose to do so? purpose to live in the presence of, of your God and purpose to do so to the end that you might become more like him, that you might then walk in that love with which he has loved you in Jesus Christ, to the end that then you will love others as he has loved you and that you will do so for that great motive of showing forth what God is like. Of course, we're, we're called to God-imitating love even when no one can see us, right? Even then, even then when we are all alone in our prayer closets, as it were, even then we, we, we show forth love for others by remembering them in our prayers and so forth. And only God sees that. And of course, God is pleased and he is glorified with that. And of course, that's our ultimate motive unto obedience, right? Christian obedience is to be ultimately unto the Lord and not unto men. But as we are thus properly motivated, the Lord surely also desires that as we live before others, that we we show them what God is like. Just think about that. What a a great motive, what a great privilege to be doing so. That's what we're called to do in any and every way in which we are called, and the Lord enables us to show love to our brothers and sisters whether we invite them into our home and show hospitality by sharing a meal just to get to know them and spend time with them, or whether we help them in a tangible way by by showing up to load up their truck as they're moving. In all of these ways, we are are showing forth what our God is like. We are being godly. We are imitating godliness in so doing. Brothers and sisters, never lose sight of that high and holy calling, which is ours in Christ Jesus, And by God's grace, we will never stop loving one another. Well, that brings us to our last point about the call to be imitators of God. 
And that is this, that it is, it is a call then to remove, remove from us all that is contrary to the grace and the love of Christ. In his grace and love, Christ died to free us not only from the condemnation of our sin, but also from the enslaving power of our sin, to remove its enslaving presence. Remember, to be a Christian is to be in Christ. That's not simply sort of a way of saying we've been united to him by faith. It's true. We are united to Christ. But to to be in Christ means that, that, that God has brought us into a whole new environment. We are in Christ, and that is a place where there is no place for sin. And that's why, compelled by the love of Christ, we're called to wage war against sin. We're called to be vigilant in, in our efforts to remove anything which, which robs God and robs us of, of seeing that call of God imitation realized in our lives. So we're called to see sin for what it is, something which is a great enemy, something which is so contrary to God, so unlike God, so wholly out of place among God's holy people. The call to imitate God is a call unto holiness. So the Lord says, be holy as I am holy. And we see it at the end of verse 3 that, that Paul here is, is, is writing about that which is proper among saints, the holy ones. That there is no sin in God, is there? He is holy and holy set apart from sin. And so anything which is contrary to God's holiness has no place in the lives of God's holy people. As God's holy people are called then to hate sin, Thomas Watson asks the question, in what do the godly reveal their holiness? And he answers by citing Jude, uh, verse 23, which says, in hating the garment spotted by the flesh. Later he writes, Holiness discharges its, discharges its fire of zeal against sin. Listen to that again. Holiness discharges its fire of zeal against sin. Are you zealous against sin in your life? Do you, do you see that truth as a reality in your life, dear Christian? May it be so more and more in your life and in my life. That's the the work of the Holy Spirit in us, making us to be more like our holy God. He he loves us, and we love him, and as we love him, we hate the things that he hates, and so we hate sin as he hates sin. And isn't that what we see behind the commands in our text? Verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are, note this, out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. See that Paul is addressing particularly the sins of adultery and fornication, but not only those. he's, he's, He's speaking to all impurity, that is, all forms of impurity or covetousness, that is, greed. So all those uh, sins are, are to be uh, put off as those who are loved by God, beloved in Christ Jesus, and, and called to imitate God. All such sins are to be removed from our actions and even from our speech, of course, even from our thinking, even from our, our hearts. 
by mentioning covetousness, we see, of course, that the, the focus here is not, not only on our outward actions, but also on the hearts from which those actions spring forth. Certainly, again, this speaks to our, our conduct as individuals, even when we are alone with only our thoughts. We know that we are never alone. There's Christ always present with us. And even in that context, again, we are called unto God imitation, holiness in what we're thinking and what we are setting our, our eyes upon, what we are setting our desires upon. But it's also true in the context of the fellowship of the church. This is an epistle which focuses much on the church. We are to imitate God together as the body of Christ in our conduct, in our speech towards one another, even the way we we look at one another, even the way in which we think about one another, there is no place, no place for any form of adultery or fornication or any form of impurity or greed. And when we think about, particularly about the the sin, seventh commandment sins, why is it that we should avoid those sins in our lives? Well, for one reason, it's because it's so completely contrary to what God is like. Isn't that true? So contrary to the nature of God, to his character, again, is the God of love. Love. Again, seen in, in the cross of Christ. It's, it's self-sacrificing. It lays down one's life. It's, it's, it's the giving up of one's own comforts and desires. You see, sexual sin does just the opposite. It's the, the, the sin of seeking to indulge one's own selfish desires. You know, the world tells us the lie that adultery can be motivated by love, right? I know I'm married to another, but oh, I've come to love this person so much. I can't be without this person. I'm constrained by love. I have to be with this person. That's not love. That is selfish lust. It's a cheap substitute for, for, for true love. True love is according to God's love, that love by which he, he has bound himself to his people in covenant. And God loves his people, and he is bound to them in covenant faithfulness. He's bound himself to us in his covenant love. And oh, what love, what grace to think, to think, wonder of wonders, to think that we who by nature are altogether so unlovely, we are called to be imitators of that love. Oscar Wilde said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. Do you see, dear Christian, this evening that God has not called us unto mediocrity. He's called us unto, to call us to, unto true greatness according to the greatness of the riches of his grace, his love, which is lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. Do you not, this evening, do you not feel constrained by that great love? Yes, it is a a call to be vigilant and opposing all that is contrary to that love, certainly certainly opposing all sins related to the seventh commandment. Paul writes that, that it should not even be mentioned. God's people should not only avoid engaging in fornication, but not even talking about it should never even be the, the subject of our conversation. Never should it be even joked about, as verse 4 makes clear. Unbelievers commonly make fornication the, the subject of, of their jokes, right? The Lord commands us 
Let there be no such filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These things are completely, as it says, out of place, out of place among God's people. And in closing this evening, just notice what a helpful command we are given, as Paul then mentions, what, what can replace any such filthy speech. He mentions thanksgiving. Think about that. Rid yourselves of any impure, any crude, inappropriate talk, and do you need something to talk about instead? Something to occupy your speech? How about thanksgiving? Just conclude on, on that thought this evening. Isn't that beautiful? Instead of, instead of fixing our thoughts, when you think particularly of seventh commandment violation, the sin of, of selfishly seeking to gratify yourself with something which God has not given you, put off that kind of speech and instead do what? Focus on all that God has given you. That's what thanksgiving is. Focus on what, what God has given you and give thanks to God and what will happen in your life. Let's connect this back to the beginning. Be imitators of God, right? By God's grace, as you strive to do so, as you, you fill your heart, you fill your mind, you fill your speech with thanksgiving to God and what will happen? You will become more and more just like that very one whom you are thanking. So in all holiness this evening, according to the riches of God's grace and love in Jesus Christ, with all thanksgiving and love and praise, brothers and sisters, let us go forth and be imitators of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that we will not do so. We have no ability to do so apart from your spirit graciously working in us. Oh, Lord, please take your word this evening. Apply it to our hearts and lives. Make us to be more like you, our kind, loving, compassionate, gracious God. Grant that we would indeed show ourselves to be your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for those good works which you have prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Hear us, O oh God, for we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.